Hello, I think it's time to add a, another story to the podcast. So today I'm going to read you a story called Rachel's Moon. Rachel was Tammy's last serious attempt to save her marriage to Daryl. The marriage had started five years earlier, and the couple had lived together for three years before that. When Tammy had met Daryl through a friend of hers, he had been a refreshing change to the button-down overachievers that her family secretly or not so secretly hoped she would marry. He worked hard at a blue-collar job and knew how to have fun. The fact that he sometimes didn't know when to stop having fun was just part of being a young man. and He was very good-looking, which Tammy told herself didn't matter, but internally she knew she would never have gone to the effort of justifying his occasional trips to jail if he had been homely or even average. But, most importantly, he was in love with her. That was no act. Daryl could not believe that Tammy had given him a second look, let alone consented to go out with him. She was so pretty and so smart, and her moral standards were so high, she shouldn't even consider someone like Daryl. But she kept on allowing him to get closer to her. When his friends teased him about being whipped, he didn't even attempt a defense. He knew after the second date that he would do anything in his power to win her heart. The amazing thing was that she didn't demand anything. Daryl knew that his drinking was beginning to be a problem. He'd assumed that it would be a major deal breaker for someone like Tammy, who obviously had not been around alcohol much at all. He tried very hard to cut it out of his life once he met her. But when it would creep back in, she was always quick to understand and even seemed interested in joining in. It was the same way with sex. Daryl had had enough contact with traditional Judeo-Christian morals through his grandma to know that good girls waited for marriage. He had been with a few of the other kind of girls and had assumed that his list of exes would be another deal-breaker. He wasn't proud of it. But he didn't hide from Tammy the fact that he had slept with almost all of them, and even admitted to a few one-night stands along the way. She took the confessions surprisingly well from his point of view. Her point of view was a little different. His confessions made her realize that if she wanted to keep him, she would have to compromise her intention to wait for marriage. The plan to wait for marriage had been part of the friendly indoctrination of the church she had attended growing up. The church had cleverly begun the indoctrination early in the life of their youth. It was far easier to convince young people who were not currently being assailed by temptation to commit to celibacy before marriage. Tammy had seriously accepted that commitment. But all of the arguments for the position seemed to be based on the fallacy that saying no would be easy if you were a good Christian. The strength of the temptation to compromise seriously surprised her. She was pretty sure that she wanted to marry Daryl. So in addition to her desire to be intimate, she felt like it was an artificial line. She had waited for the man who she was going to marry. Why did she have to wait for some religious ceremony to make it okay. And now she told herself that since he had slept with other girls, he would never wait for her. He would go and find someone else. 
she would lose the man she wanted to marry over an artificial date and some magic words that a pastor would say. It occurred to Tammy that they could just go and get married, but that would force her to face her family. It would also end the dream of the big wedding. So she just continued to date Daryl with an ever-decreasing intention to wait for marriage. To his surprise, Daryl found his sexual advances being welcomed rather than resisted and was happy to find that Tammy had changed her mind. He had honestly been willing to wait until marriage, even understood some of the reasons, but he was still glad that that requirement had been waived. To salve her conscience, however, Tammy had to go through the pretense of falling into sin, although the feeling of guilt after their first time wasn't a pretense. Daryl immediately noticed something was wrong and apologized profusely. He had thought she wanted to go all the way, and she had. But in his apology, she found a pattern that became useful for the future. Because Daryl was so awed by her intelligence and high morals, he was quick to accept the role of scapegoat. Tammy told herself she felt better having him to blame. blame. But like any addiction, it quickly became something that gave her no pleasure, but which she couldn't live without. Daryl was the problem, not her. Daryl supposed that was the cost of marrying up. He bore the role of scapegoat for another year past the wedding. Their sexual intimacy had dwindled to almost nothing. When the wedding plans were too far along to cancel, Tammy began to have some doubts. She still wanted Daryl for a husband, but she began to doubt that he was really in love with her. Maybe he was like the stereotype of all guys, and to him, she was just a sex object. She began raising the bar. It wasn't enough to be turned on by her. He had to want her enough to create just the right romantic mood before she would agree to intimacy. She was desperate to prove, herself, prove to herself that he really loved her. It seemed she made the obstacle course required for intimate access harder every week. Eventually, convincing Daryl that sex was something she hated and only did when she couldn't get out of it. Out of respect for her wishes, he tried to limit his desire for her. But it didn't work very well. He was in love with her and very much attracted to her. Daryl's plan to distract himself from wanting his wife by increasing his time away from home with longer hours of work and an increase of the outdoor activities he'd enjoyed as a bachelor but neglected since his courtship and marriage had two problematic results. Since Tammy's actions were prompted by her doubts about her worth, she drew the conclusion that without sex she was nothing to him, and Daryl's return to his former hobbies brought him back to his former friends. Their idea of drinking responsibly was only getting drunk on weekends. But for Daryl, that line had always been difficult to maintain. The first thing that alcohol, alcohol clouded for Daryl 
was his ability to know when to stop. Tammy's claim, I'm not the problem, he is, was reassuring when the problems amounted to little more than bickering. But now the problems were legal and financial. Daryl's DUI punished the whole family quite effectively. Tammy felt like somehow she had to get control of Daryl. But she wasn't even sure that he wanted her. And she couldn't really share her problems with her family without enduring the I told you so vibe. The idea of having a child to bring them back together never fully formed in Tammy's mind. She just knew that she had to do something. Daryl had wanted a baby ever since they were together. So she pretended she didn't need to discuss it with him and stopped using any form of birth control. For a few weeks, it seemed like the idea was working. Tammy was receptive to Daryl's occasional hints even suggesting intimacy on a few occasions, and he was delighted to be wanted again. Apart from a fishing trip, which he and his friends had scheduled for months, and a weekly ATV ride, which was tradition with his buddies, he began hanging around the house again. The day Tammy announced she was pregnant was the happiest in Daryl's life. He proudly told anyone he could find always a little disappointed that they already knew from Facebook. And when Tammy had her first ultrasound, he carried around the picture of a grainy, vague blob as if it were a priceless piece of art. He also committed himself to helping out around the house. At first, his help was needed because Tammy had some daunting bouts with morning sickness. But as she recovered, her position slowly morphed from needing his help because of the pregnancy to having the leverage to control him. Daryl began to resent the control. Tammy, the pregnancy, and the baby, in that order. He began counting the days until the birth, like a school kid counting down the days to summer vacation. Oblivious to the fact that the birth marks the beginning of the need for cooperation and hard work, not the end of it. His resentment towards the baby disappeared when he saw Rachel. He honestly loved her as much as he had ever loved anything. But his expectation that the birth released him from the indentured servitude of the pregnancy, which he resented deeply, was not helped by Tammy's concept of the division of labor. The only time Daryl got to hold Rachel was when Tammy was frustrated by the child's fussing. In Tammy's view, Daryl apparently had no business with the baby when she was happy. With a firewall between him and his happy baby, and a distinct disinterest on his wife's part in resuming any marital relations, Daryl began avoiding his home in favor of his old friends and their habits. He returned to his former habit of smoking. Tammy interpreted the concept of secondhand smoke to include any lingering odor from a cigarette and began to insist that he shower and change before he could hold the baby. Tammy felt herself losing control of Daryl. She wanted him back but had lost faith in her power to attract him. And she couldn't see how much he wanted her love. So she tried to find the leverage to manipulate him. 
Then one night, in the heat of an argument, she brought up wanting a divorce, in hope that it would motivate him to want to change. Daryl didn't seem to care, and once divorce was on the table, it seemed to inch forward as inexorable as a glacier with every argument. Seven months later, the glacier officially ended the marriage. Publicly, Tammy blamed Daryl for everything. But he would have been surprised at how much she blamed herself for the failure when she was alone with her thoughts. That abiding sense of failure made her desperate to win the next round. And the next round happened to be custody. Tammy never outright opposed Daryl having contact with Rachel. She just wanted to make sure she was in control of every aspect of every visit. She realized quickly that the court was disposed to take her side, but she had to give them something to work with. She had to provide a clear reason for them to put him in the bad guy pigeonhole. Many of Tammy's and Daryl's friends simply sided with whichever spouse they were friends with originally. But one couple wouldn't make that distinction. They still invited both of them to any social activities they scheduled. Their daughter, who was a couple months older than Rachel, was turning three when they invited Rachel and Daryl to the party. Daryl was scheduled to have visitation that day and Tammy realized that if he were at the party, she could keep an eye on him for most of the day. So she encouraged him to come. Daryl, who was irritated by Tammy's constant control, still cherished a hope that she would come to her senses and realize she wanted him. Her invitation to join the party seemed sincere, and in Daryl's optimism, he thought that it might indicate a thawing of her attitude towards him. The gathering included many of their mutual friends, and for a while it felt like when they were first married. Daryl was fully enjoying himself, and since the party was intended to last into the evening, he enjoyed a couple extra beers, figuring the alcohol would have time to metabolize before he had to drive home. Unfortunately, as soon as the meal was done, Tammy began dropping hints that he should leave. Daryl was resistant figuring these were his friends as much as hers. Until she began questioning whether he even wanted to spend quality time with Rachel. Daryl did. The only downside of the party was that Rachel had been busy with the other children most of the time. He decided he would take Tammy's hint and take Rachel home. He had a ghost of suspicion that maybe Tammy was waiting to, until he left to invite a new boyfriend to come, which hurt him deeply, but nowhere as deeply as what actually happened to be the plan. Daryl was about five miles down the road when he was pulled over by a cop who seemed to be sure he was driving under the influence. When Daryl blew up .07, the cop seemed very disappointed until he found out that Daryl was on probation with a no-drink requirement. A call to probation got him arrested, and the presence of the child got Tammy what she needed. Daryl fit very nicely into the pigeonhole of an alcoholic who was in the habit of putting his child at risk. 
No one Daryl found seemed to care that Tammy had knowingly sent her daughter in the car and very likely called the police believing Daryl was drunk. The judge sentenced Daryl to just long enough to lose his job and reinstated him on probation, which was only scheduled to last another four months. Daryl behaved perfectly for those four months, then disappeared. Tammy had no idea where he had gone and no way of bringing him back since he had been discharged from probation. The four months of unemployment had dropped his child support to very little and without knowing where he had gone, Tammy couldn't find his new employer. Daryl had let Tammy have the house in the divorce, but without anything coming for child support, she quickly realized she could sell it quick or get it repossessed, but she was pretty sure she couldn't keep it. She found an old farmhouse that she could afford to rent and made the move. Rachel seemed to take it all in stride. The old farmhouse was not nearly as nice as their former home, but she adapted well to everything, except the electrical system. The farmhouse predated in-home electrical service. At some point it had been electrified, but the system was minimal at best. The problem for Rachel was that her room had no good place to plug in her nightlight. The only place her dresser fit covered the only outlet they had bothered to put in the room. Rachel was comforted by her light, but the overhead light was too bright and tended to keep her up at night. A good night's sleep was especially important to Tammy, who had taken a second job to try to keep up their bills. Tammy had had an epiphany of sorts after she had to, had to let the house go. She had decided not to be a victim. She found it hard to believe that Daryl would up and leave until she began to add up all the reasons he had to leave and balance them against the reasons she had given him to stay. It was painful for Tammy to admit it, but he hadn't done this to her without her help. In deciding not to be a victim, Tammy found herself even further estranged from her parents. Their disapproval of Daryl had made it hard to be with them while they were married. Now they would have willingly welcomed her back as a victim who needed to be reminded that they had been right all along. She tried for a couple of visits before deciding that the firewall that had been created during the marriage would have to be retained if not expanded. Her parents were not happy with the arrangement and spent their visits trying to guilt her into giving them more time with Rachel rather than spending the time helping her want to have them around more. After a couple months, Tammy had told her parents in no uncertain terms that they needed to back off. When Tammy got a call from her grandfather, she thought for a minute that her parents had enlisted his aid in trying to break through the firewall. But then she remembered how her grandpa had always gone his own way. He reserved the right to like who he liked, whether the family approved or not. And if he knew about the tension between her and her parents, it was likely he had called 
as a show of support. Or maybe he had called because he was lonely. Tammy's grandmother had passed away the year before. The funeral had taken place a half dozen states away, and Tammy had been focused on her own troubles, so she had missed the funeral. But she had reached out to her grandpa and found him comforting. He lived in Virginia and still worked at a job about which Tammy knew very little. She knew it had to do with science and technology and inventing stuff for the government. But her grandpa was so good at drawing her out that she seldom remembered to ask him about what he did. After getting caught up on Rachel and Tammy's lives, Grandpa came to the point. Would you mind if I came out for a visit and stayed with you? I hear you've got a big farmhouse, and I was thinking you might have an extra room where, I, where you could tuck me and I'd be out of everyone's way. I'd love that, Grandpa. I do have a guest room, and it just makes the house feel empty. I'd love to have you stay as long as you can, Tammy responded. Well, I couldn't or didn't take a break after the funeral, and maybe that was good. I just needed to get back to my work, but now I feel like I need some time to live and think outside the little bubble I've been in here. I miss your grandma a lot, every day, but I want to miss her somewhere else. Here, sometimes I wonder if I miss her just because I'm used to having her here. I want to make sure I'm missing her because I loved her, not because I took her for granted. I thought that staying with you and Rachel would be perfect, if it's not too much trouble. We would love it. When are you coming? I have to wrap up some things here, and then I'll make the trip. But I want to bring you something. What do you need for the house? Offered Grandpa. You don't have to bring anything, protested Tammy. I know, but I want to. You must need something in an old house like that, persisted Grandpa. Just having you here will be special enough. Don't feel like you have to bring anything. Let me put it this way, Tammy. If you don't tell me what you need, I might bring Rachel a bunny. She'd like that, I'm sure. Tammy groaned. She would, but that's the last thing I need here. Okay, you win. Let me think. The house is in pretty good shape for its age, but if you could find some sort of nightlight for Rachel, it would be helpful. Tammy told Grandpa about the electrical challenges in the house, and he promised to find something that would make a good nightlight for her bedroom without dangerous power cords. Tammy hung up the phone, feeling the best she had for a long time. Her family was willing to be there for her if she was willing to be a victim, but Grandpa needed something from her, and being asked gave her a sense of worth that little else in the world outside of Rachel ever did. The only thing Tammy didn't realize that in asking an inventor for a new improved nightlight, she triggered an inspiration in her grandpa's thinking. Grandpa arrived two weeks later and immediately became a favorite with Rachel. The first morning, he came down for breakfast and saw that Rachel was dressed and packed for daycare. Where is she going? he queried. Tammy stumbled with her reply. Well... I wasn't sure you'd want the responsibility of watching her all day. I, I didn't want to bother you. Grandpa was playfully indignant. I came a thousand miles just to be bothered. If I wanted to be left alone, I could have stayed home. Well, if you're sure, hesitated Tammy. If it creates a problem with your daycare, I understand, but I'm totally willing to watch Rachel while you're at work. It's no problem there. Actually, it would save me some money. I just don't want to impose on you. 
Impose away, Grandpa responded. It will be my pleasure. Rachel spent that day and every day thereafter in a paradise of fun. Grandpa took her on walks, read her every book she chose, even doing a cute little mouse voice on her favorite story, made tents out of blankets for her to take naps in, and made macaroni and cheese for almost every lunch. But best of all, Grandpa gave her a nightlight. For the first week when Tammy got home from work, Grandpa would go up to Rachel's room and work. Tammy was puzzled. She couldn't imagine how a nightlight could take hours, even days, to set up. But after questioning Grandpa and getting his favorite line, the more you watch, the more you see, and then the more surprised you'll be, she had no choice but to be patient. After a week, all the clutter was removed, and all that could be noticed in Rachel's room were four boxes mounted on the wall. Each had a small yellow LED, but that couldn't be the whole nightlight. One evening, Grandpa brought Rachel and Tammy into the room for the great unveiling. He opened his bag and lifted out a shiny, polished globe, about the size of a basketball, and he lifted it up above his head to a point about equal distance from each of the boxes on the walls. Grandpa lowered his hand and the globe remained suspended in the air. Grandpa instructed Tammy to turn off the lights and the globe began to glow with a pale blue light. Rachel exclaimed, The moon! It's the moon! Grandpa, you made me a moon! She ran over to hug Grandpa while Tammy looked at the hovering light in disbelief. How does it work? she asked. Magic, answered Grandpa. No, really, how does it work? If I explained it to you, it would probably make as much sense as my magic answer. This uses some of the technology I work with at the lab, with a twist of my own. We have been experimenting with magnetic levitation, or maglev, and I thought it would make a nice light. It's a moon, asserted Rachel. So Rachel had her own moon. Tammy and everyone else who saw it called it Rachel's moon, but Rachel always called it Grandpa's moon. After several weeks, Grandpa had to leave. Rachel cried when he left, but that night she went to bed in the light of Grandpa's moon. Tammy explained to her that she would always have her light to remind her of her grandpa and how much he loved her. And even though Tammy couldn't understand how it worked, the moon hovered there in Rachel's room, beginning to glow each night when it grew dark. Six months after the visit, the family was surprised by the news that Grandpa had passed away suddenly. From complications in what was supposed to be a routine medical procedure, once again, Tammy opted to miss the funeral. Not because she was too busy, but because she didn't want the memories of her grandpa to be clouded with memories of seeing his corpse or going through the funeral. That night, Tammy took Rachel, and sitting in the light of Grandpa's moon, she tried to explain to her daughter that Grandpa was in heaven now. To Rachel, it made little difference. Virginia and heaven were both beyond her comprehension. Grandpa wasn't any more gone now than when he left for his home. 
Besides, he left me the moon, concluded Rachel. Rachel's matter-of-fact acceptance was uplifting to Tammy. It didn't mean no more tears, but whenever she felt the sorrow, she made a point of remembering her grandpa's visit and all that he had left for her, not just the moon, but the confidence and the sense of purpose he had given Tammy. Life continued pretty much unchanged for a while. Tammy began to see the positive results of her choice not to be a victim. Slowly, she dug herself out of the hole that she and Daryl had dug for themselves. Some days it felt like the hole was winning. Her vehicle would break down and use up all the money she had saved during the previous months, or an unexpected fee would hit her bank account and she would spend far more money than she could afford paying the overdraft fees that resulted. But each month, she was able to rise a little higher. Her family began to come around and visit on her terms. They had learned by watching that she wasn't a victim to be pitied. She was a young lady who had made a bad choice, but she was a young lady who had learned to make a good choice. She actually began to get comfortable with her life and began to be able to coast a little instead of every day being a struggle just to survive. Then one day, Rachel, who had learned to love books on her grandpa's visit, was paging through a book she found on her mother's shelf. It was hardly a children's book, but there were occasional illustrations, and Rachel was turning every page carefully to make sure she didn't miss any of the pictures when she came upon a picture of Daryl. It was a school portrait which had been taken when he was a junior. He had brought it to show Tammy back when they were dating, and they both had had a good laugh at the fashion trends and hairstyles they both remembered from their high school days. Rachel took the picture and studied it for a while, confident that she should know who it was, but not able to come up with a name. She took the picture to where Tammy was busy making supper and showed it to her mom, demanding, Who is this? Tammy had always purposed to be open with Rachel about her father, and what happened? But this was the first time the young child had shown any real interest. Tammy halfway hoped that Rachel had forgotten him. That is your father, she answered. My daddy? Yes, he's your daddy, confirmed Rachel. Rachel turned and walked out of the kitchen saying, I knew I had a daddy. Over the next few months, the picture was Rachel's constant companion when she was home. Whatever she was doing, she would set the picture beside her so her daddy could watch. Tammy watched with interest and concern, but Rachel seemed okay with her daddy being a face on a picture. Rachel didn't even seem curious about what had happened to him. She was just satisfied that she had a father somewhere who loved her. She had a grandpa in heaven who loved her and a father in Virginia who loved her. He wasn't actually in Virginia, but to Rachel, anyone who went away went either to Virginia or to heaven. She considered herself a lucky girl. She did have a father who meant to love her, but he lived in Colorado. He thought about her often, but consoled himself that she was in good hands. 
Daryl never doubted that Tammy would be a good mother. And he was sure that now that he was gone, her parents would pitch in and help the daughter he abandoned. The newfound freedom when he had left had been a treat. Daryl fully intended to go back to where he had been when he met Tammy. He looked forward to being able to have a few beers without having to justify himself to Tammy or to get drunk at a party with no fear of being interrogated later. But it turned out he was overly optimistic. The alcohol was quickly joined by marijuana and became how he medicated himself to avoid the pain of the shame and failure he felt about his failed marriage and abandoned fatherhood. Given a group of sympathetic listeners, others guys with ex-wives, he could explain clearly how the whole problem was Tammy and her unrealistic and controlling demands. But inside, he knew he had failed at the one thing that mattered to him. Pot and alcohol, both being legal in that state, didn't become a legal problem in and of themselves. But they constantly caused other problems. And Darrow's life seemed to be a series of calamities of various sizes. He was in and out of different jails for charges that were never serious enough to require hard time, but were always enough to cost him his job and most of whatever he had accumulated. Fortunately, Darrell was still pretty good-looking, and he could present himself well, and there seemed to be an almost endless supply of youngish women whose self-worth was so low that a man, just out of jail, with nothing to his name, seemed like a good catch. He would welcome the relationship because it would often provide him with a place to stay until he got back on his feet. But it wasn't totally mercenary. He honestly liked several of the girlfriends he moved in with and optimistically believed that you could lay the foundation for a long-term relationship by moving in with her the first week. But typically, by the second or third month, the relationship felt unbearable. Although he couldn't put his conclusions into words, he constantly found himself caught in the same pattern. The women he was with were systematically, if unintentionally, selected for their low self-worth. As a result, many of them confused the worth they were seeking from a lover with the worth they felt as a mother. When their first disappointment in their latest choice for a mate hit, they quickly abandoned the hope of being valued as a loving partner and tried to mother their mate. At first, Daryl welcomed the mothering, but soon it felt more like smothering and he plotted to escape, first by sneaking away and then, when confronted, by open defiance. He always missed Rachel most following one of those breakups, partly because he suddenly found himself with a lot more free time, and partly because the new breakup reminded him of his previous failures and it still bothered him that he wasn't there for his daughter, and partly because twice he didn't run away until after they had conceived another child. After Daryl left, Rachel had abstained completely from social media, deleting her Facebook account for fear that if she created an online presence, that Daryl would use it to try to track her life. But now that Rachel seemed to be interested in her father, Tammy convinced herself that if she got back on Facebook, she might be able to let Daryl have some limited contact with her daughter. The idea might have been a healthy one, 
but it created two problems. First, the faceback format allowed Tammy to make decisions in the emotion of a moment, which she couldn't later undo, which is exactly what happened. She had been stalking Daryl online for a while, knowing that she needed to be very careful to make sure any contact she had with Daryl would be healthy for Rachel. But all it took was one night when she was feeling particularly lonely and wishing she had someone who cared for her to message Daryl. Daryl was in the middle of his next breakup when the message came and he immediately answered. By the time he had exchanged half a dozen messages, he was convinced that it could work out between him and Tammy. Conversely, Tammy was convinced that she didn't really want him back. But she felt guilty for opening the Pandora's box, which was to be their relationship for the next few months. She knew that she shouldn't have proceeded on a whim. And in an effort to clear her conscience, she allowed Daryl to have contact with Rachel. She agreed to a phone call. Daryl was excited. But calling the young girl was like calling a total stranger with a four-year-old vocabulary. After a few questions, he had nothing more to say, and Rachel sensed his lack of comfort and was silent. Finally, Tammy reluctantly came on the phone to end the conversation, and Daryl confessed his inability to talk with his daughter and asked if he made the trip back if he could see Rachel face to face. Tammy agreed to think about it. She talked it over with a couple who had remained friends with both her and Daryl until the end, and they quickly offered to host the visit. And it created a perfect opportunity for Tammy. The second aspect of her presence on Facebook was that she, whenever she recalled someone she had not seen in a long time, would search for them on Facebook. This included old high school friends, one of whom she had had a crush on in sixth grade and was newly divorced. A satisfying online relationship ensued and Tammy seemed unable to realize that an online relationship with a guy is in some ways like pornography for men. Men get what they value most in a relationship, sexual stimulation, without any of the inconvenient parts like having to be responsible or having to learn to be in a relationship. It's not a perfect correlation, but for thousands, it, it obviously is close enough to get them hooked. And Tammy, like many other women, got a man who always seemed ready to sit down and have a mature conversation with her, relating interesting anecdotes from his day without the inconvenience of having him get getting turned on when she wasn't in the mood or having to learn to be in a relationship. Maybe the big difference in the two forms of online experiences is that few of the adult film celebrities ever suggest meeting in person. But many of the online relationships someday cross out of their virtual sphere and the couple decide to meet in person. For some, internet is a tool of communication which allows people to connect who might otherwise never find each other. For others, it is a tool of self-deception 
which allows people to imagine a reality which doesn't, in fact, exist. Tammy was ready to take her online relationship to the next level, and having Rachel stay with their friends while Daryl came to visit her gave her the freedom to make a trip to meet her middle school flame. Daryl fell in love. Tammy didn't. Daryl left after the weekend, determined to do whatever it took to be there for Rachel. His daughter was so beautiful and smart. He decided then that he would give up his life in Colorado and find work close to his daughter so he could see her as often as possible. Tammy spent most of the weekend with her potential boyfriend and realized his whole online persona was an act. She didn't bother to consider that he didn't intentionally hide the things that irritated her. They were just things you didn't send in a message or which a Skype chat couldn't show. She returned home feeling again like a failure and when she picked up Rachel she was irritated to find her daughter had bonded well with Daryl. Rachel was so excited she didn't notice her mother's discomfort as the young girl told all about the things her daddy had promised to do with her. Now a duel began in earnest between Tammy and Daryl. Daryl understood that he would have to earn back the trust that he sacrificed when he abandoned his daughter and he returned with the intention of earning that trust. But the obstacles that Tammy placed in his way were not for the purpose of allowing him to earn her trust. They were traps designed for him to fail. It took her two months and three visits to convince Daryl to give up again. He went back to Colorado and resumed his life such as it was, missing Rachel and trying to forget her, until with his next romantic failure, he would be so lonely he would make another attempt to get in touch with his daughter, figuring that some input from her father was better than none. He would try to beg or manipulate Tammy into a visit, and occasionally she relented. He would show up with gifts and promises. He would delight Rachel and then disappear again. By the time Rachel was seven, it had become a pattern in her life. But what neither of her parents realized was that Rachel never blamed either of her parents. Both her mother and her father felt guilty about the way things were going. They were both on an emotional roller coaster and knew that they were forcing Rachel to ride along, but neither knew how to get off. They would have understood if Rachel wasn't upset with them. Daryl halfway expected her to be angry about all of the broken promises each time he called. But the young girl drew a far different conclusion. She never doubted her daddy's love. She just assumed that she was unlovable. From her perspective, her daddy would come full of love for the moment, and promises for the future, only to discover that in some undefined way he couldn't keep on loving her. She had failed him. 
The vague sorrow she had felt back when she thought she had a daddy in Virginia was replaced with an acute sense of her worthlessness. She must not be lovable because daddies loved their daughters, but hers couldn't. Rachel couldn't have put any of this into words, which probably was fortunate. Had she been able to tell anyone how she felt, they would have likely counseled her to stop feeling that way, subtly adding guilt of feeling how she shouldn't feel to the pain of knowing she wasn't really lovable. And still, Grandpa's moon floated in her room, glowing each night with its pale, bluish light. That year in school, Rachel learned about gravity, which caused some problems between Rachel and her teacher. The teacher began the topic by making what was, to her, an obvious point. Things don't just float in the air. While most of the students accepted this observation, a few challenged it. Airplanes were brought up, and the teacher got to explain about lift. The Goodyear blimp was brought up, and the class learned about helium. The sun, the moon, and the other planets were brought up, and the class learned about the solar system. And then Rachel brought up her nightlight, and the teacher didn't believe her. She insisted that there had to be something supporting the light. And Rachel, who was struggling with her self-worth, wasn't convinced, but she shut up and said no more. That night, when she went to bed, she asked her mother about it. Why doesn't Grandpa's moon fall down? I don't really know, admitted Tammy. Grandpa never explained it. But what is holding it up? I guess your Grandpa's love is what keeps it there, concluded Tammy, pleased with her poetic answer. Why do you say that? Well, your grandpa made it because he loved you. So that must be what keeps it up, Ex explained Tammy, wishing that her daughter had just accepted her symbolic answer. Well, what if he stopped loving me? He won't. Grandpa is in heaven with Jesus. He won't stop loving you, assured Tammy. But if he was with Jesus, he couldn't keep on loving me if I were bad. Jesus wouldn't let him, reasoned Rachel. Even though it had been a long time since she had thought about it, Tammy knew the right answer, the answer she had learned as a child in church. But she didn't want to try to explain it all. Over the years, she had traded in a specific faith for a non-specific benevolent spirituality where grandpas went to heaven just because it would be mean to keep them out. And a god, if there really was one, shouldn't be mean, should he? So to avoid a further discussion, she chose an easier answer. You will never do something like that, will you? So you don't need to worry about it. Now it's time for you to go to sleep. You have a busy day tomorrow. 
Rachel wasn't so sure it would never happen. As she stared at Grandpa's moon, she wondered if her grandpa would ever be unable to love her like her daddy was. The weekend came and Rachel was home all day Saturday. Tammy had projects she had brought home from work that occupied her attention most of the day. And as was becoming the norm, Rachel stayed in her room, except when she was called down for meals. Tammy had noticed the change. Rachel used to be a little chatterbox, but since the visits with Daryl ended, she no longer had much to say. Tammy probed a little into possible causes, but she couldn't find any evidence that Rachel was angry with her father or with herself. She was concerned, but busyness made it easier just to ignore the problem. That night, she came into Rachel's room and found, to her surprise, that in the middle of the room, Rachel had built a tower of sorts. She had slid her dresser into the middle of the room, taken out all of the drawers and stacked them on the top of the dresser, added a wastebasket and a step stool to the pile and had crowned the stack with a pillow which was wedged under the shining globe of Grandpa's moon. What happened, Rachel? asked her mother. Did it fall down? No, said Rachel with a trace of a proud smile, and now it never will. Do you think it was going to fall down? asked Tammy. It could have. But why would it fall? Because there was nothing to hold it up, argued Rachel. You said that nothing was holding it up. I think I said that I didn't know how it was being held up, protested Tammy. But something must have been holding it up. Grandpa's love, right? Confirmed Rachel. But I haven't seen him for so long. I can hardly remember what he looks like and... And heaven is so far away, and, and maybe he won't always love me. I just don't want to take a chance. Tammy didn't know what to say or do. She wanted to explain that she had been speaking symbolically when she said that Grandpa's love kept the moon up. But she didn't really see how that would help. So she left the pile of furniture in the middle of Rachel's room. Rachel fell asleep, as she always did, in the gleam of her grandpa's moon. But that night, a shadow from her tower blocked much of the light. Time went on, and the tower still stood in the middle of the room. Half of Rachel's clothes were trapped in the drawers, but she wouldn't let her mother touch them. Each the day... The memory that the light had once floated without support faded. And Rachel became more and more convinced that the light remained where it was because of her tower. If anyone came to the house, she would jealously guard the structure, making sure that no one touched it. Tammy watched with concern. But since she couldn't explain why the light stayed up in the first place, she could do little to convince Rachel to trust that the light would stay up without her support. She could have forced the issue, but since Rachel already seemed so gloomy, Tammy gave in and let the tower stay where it was. As time went on, the young girl became more and more protective of her tower. 
She didn't wait until people came into her room. She would remind anyone who came to the house or even thought about coming to the house that they better not touch the tower. She was so touchy about her tower that few of her friends wanted to come over. Even Tammy's adult friends were not spared Rachel's lectures about leaving her tower alone. As a result, Tammy was too embarrassed to have them over. Whenever Rachel left home, the first thing she did when she returned was to check the tower. Rachel was perceptive. She knew that she was gradually getting more isolated, and in her mind it confirmed the suspicion that maybe she was unlovable. The thought of losing her grandpa's love was too much to bear. And the only thing that ensured that wouldn't happen was the tower she had built. Then one day, Tammy got an unusual call. The gentleman on the phone asked if she was related to a Dr. Doug Spicer. She explained that Doug was her grandfather, but went on to clarify that he was deceased. I know. My name is Peter Coughlin. I was a friend and colleague of your grandfather. I was going through some of my notes the other day, and I found your number. He gave it to me when he went to stay with you in case I needed to get in touch, said the voice on the phone. Uh-huh, murmured Tammy, not sure where this was leading. I was wondering, did your grandfather by any chance leave anything with you related to his work? Tammy was on her guard. She couldn't imagine her grandfather stealing something from work, but she wasn't going to admit the existence of Rachel's moon until she knew more. She responded, my grandpa never really told me what sort of work he did, so I really don't know. What sort of thing were you thinking he might have left? I'm not really sure either. I was working with your grandfather in the lab at the time, and I remember right before he left, he spent a lot of time on a personal project. It, it, it might be something that floats in the air, but... That hardly seems possible, admitted the man. Knowing your grandfather's genius, it could be almost anything. If he left something, would it be a problem, asked Tammy. Oh, no, assured the man. I, I would just like to see it, whatever it is. Why? I guess if I want to see it, and it sounds like there is something. I owe you some explanation. I think your grandfather may have figured something out that we weren't ready to believe. Much of our work is classified, but I can tell you this much. For a long time, the military wanted to have projectiles that would float in a gun barrel without touching the sides, which would eliminate almost all of the friction. Getting an object to float isn't hard, but getting it to remain stable is. Your grandfather tried to get permission to develop such a system, but was repeatedly told there wasn't money for such an unlikely project. He left me a drawing that made me think he had actually made a breakthrough. Tammy deliberated for a minute in silence, and the man seemed to understand that she was leery of his request. 
Her pride in her grandfather won out. Yes, I, I think he did make a breakthrough. If it's worth a trip, I will show it to you. But first, you claim to be a friend of my grandfather. If that's true, what was his wife's name? Your grandmother's name was Rachel. Tammy made arrangements for the visit and hung up. Two days later, Mr. Coughlin arrived in a rented car after having flown into the nearest airport. Tammy met him at the door, and the 50-ish man appeared as, a, as kind as he had sounded on the phone. She invited him in and introduced him to Rachel. He dropped to one knee so he could look her in the face, held her hand, and said, I'm very pleased to meet you, Rachel. My name is Peter, and I liked your grandfather very much. I am glad to meet one of his most favorite people. Rachel's face began to shine with a smile that had been missing for a long time. Do you want to see Grandpa's moon? she asked, taking him by the hand. And with that, she assumed the role of tour guide. She led Peter up the stairs to her room and pointed to the shiny globe which appeared to rest on the pillow topping her tower. She said, there it is. Tammy, who was trailing along, saw that his face fell when he saw the supporting tower. But he hid the reaction from Rachel, who appeared proud not only of her grandpa's moon, but also of her tower. Tammy wanted to assure him that the tower was unnecessary, but she decided to wait and let the situation unfold on its own. It's better at night, because then the moon shines, explained Rachel. I see, commented Peter. May I take a closer look? Okay, but don't bump the tower. I won't, he assured her. Peter circled the tower, observing the globe. Then he went to each of the boxes mounted on the wall and inspected them closely. A look of awe and excitement crossed his face as slowly he began to comprehend how the system worked. He came back to stand beside Rachel. Did you build this tower all by yourself? Yes, I did, she answered proudly. Did the moon ever fall down before you built it? Peter asked with genuine curiosity. No, it has been there ever since Grandpa gave it to me. Why, started the scientist, then changed his question. Do you think it would still float without your tower? I think it would, said Rachel, but what if it didn't? Peter took his time answering. It was clear he wanted to see the question from Rachel's point of view. As if to help him, he squatted down on his haunches so that he was right beside her. That would be pretty sad, wouldn't it? Rachel faced him and nodded. Her smile was gone. This kind, soft-spoken man realized that there was something more to the tower. What do you think might make it fall. Rachel looked down. I don't know. There must be something that made you think it would fall, 
encouraged Peter. What if Grandpa couldn't love me anymore? Rachel voiced the doubts that had begun to plague her. Peter wasn't sure what the connection was, but he hadn't become a great inventor by jumping to conclusions or fitting phenomena into his perspective. He looked at Tammy, who appeared as if she were preparing to explain to Rachel how ridiculous that idea was, and his eyes pleaded with her to let him go on questioning the girl. Tammy backed down, and Peter agreed with Rachel. I think that would be even worse than having the light fall down. Again, Rachel nodded, and her eyes were shining with tears welling up in them. Has something like that ever happened before? Was there anyone who couldn't love you anymore? Her nod dislodged two big tears that fell onto Peter's knee. Who was it? He asked. My daddy was gone for such a long time. Then he finally came back, but he found out he couldn't love me anymore. Do you think if your grandpa came back, he might not be able to love you anymore? Tammy looked up. How could this man let Rachel think such a thing was even a possibility? The poor girl needed to be set straight. But again, his kind eyes begged to be allowed to continue. Rachel looked conflicted. She didn't even want to verbalize the thought that Grandpa might not be able to keep on loving her. But at the same time, that was exactly the fear that had taken hold of her life. She nodded again, much less confidently. What if you and your mom sat there on the bed, and I grabbed a chair and I told you a story, said Peter, standing up stiffly. Rachel was surprised by the change in subject, but she climbed up onto the bed and was joined by her mother, who wrapped her arms around her daughter. I met your grandpa many years ago when I got a job at the lab where he worked. I think they hired me because they thought he was going to be done working soon. He was old enough that he could have quit any time. But he didn't quit, and we became very close friends. He taught me many things about inventing and science, but he also taught me many things about loving, too. He loved your grandma very much and all of his children and grandchildren. And then one day he came to work with some very good news. He told me that he was going to be a great grandpa. One of his beautiful granddaughters was expecting a baby. He didn't just tell me. He told everyone at work. He was so excited as he counted down the weeks until the baby was going to be born. Then one day, he got the call while he was at work. I watched him. He listened to that call, and his smile was the biggest smile that I have ever seen. When he heard the news that his great-granddaughter was born, and that she was named Rachel. Was that me? asked Rachel her eyes wide with excitement. That was you. 
but it wasn't the only Rachel he loved. His wife was your great-grandmother, and her name was Rachel, too. Now he had two Rachels who he loved very much. Soon, however, while you were still a very little girl, your grandmother began to get sick. Your grandpa watched sadly as she kept getting sicker and sicker until she finally died. Your grandpa knew that she was in heaven with Jesus, who she loved very much, and he wished he could go to heaven too. But he still had one Rachel here on earth who he wanted to see. One day he came to me and told me he was going to make a trip to see his little Rachel. You know more about that trip than me because he came here to spend it with you. But what I know is that he returned very happy. And just a little while later, your grandpa got his wish to go to heaven and see Jesus and your great grandma. For a while he was here with you and the Rachel he loved first was in heaven. And now he is in heaven and the other Rachel he loves is here. But I know this, he will always love you. Do you want to know how I know? Rachel's face was again beaming and she answered, yes. I know he will always love you because he loved you first. He loved you before he even knew you or had seen you. He didn't love you because you were pretty or smart or because you were a good girl. He loved you because you were his great-granddaughter. And he made you the coolest nightlight in the whole world, not to prove that he loved you, but to remind you of his love. The three sat there together in silence for a long time, thinking about Grandpa and his love. Then Peter said, Have you ever wished you could use your dresser for something besides a tower? Tammy nodded heartily, and Rachel agreed too. I can't get to my favorite sweatshirt, she lamented. Her mom laughed. The way you've been growing, it might not fit anymore. Peter continued. Would you be willing to let me help you take down this tower? A look of alarm crept back into Rachel's face. What if Grandpa's moon falls down? What if it does? Do you think your grandpa would stop loving you? The smile returned and Rachel's answer was confident. No, he will always love me. Then let's take that chance said Peter, reaching toward the pillow on the top of the pile. May I? Rachel answered, yes. I think Jesus may be asking you the same question today. He has seen all the hurt that brought you to doubt his father's love and question your own worth. And he has watched all that you have done to try to build a tower to hold up that love in your own strength.
He comes to you now and asks, Will you trust my love? Will you let me take down the tower you have built? You may not be able to imagine life without your tower. Or you may not even realize the tower you have built. But dare to give him permission to tear it down. Dare to answer yes.